Good morning, Grace. Uh, I am a not Benji, <laughs> uh, in case you didn't know. Um, I'm Rob Grindy. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. Uh, a little over a year ago, the elders all took turns giving their testimonies on the Sunday evening service. Um, after I finished mine, Pastor Benji asked if I would be willing to share my story on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, uh, so which just happens to be today. Uh, so here I am. In case you're here and don't know what Sanctity of Life Sunday is, um, or just Sanctity of Life Sunday, if we can stipulate the assumption that I'm speaking specifically of human life, let me give a brief synopsis. But before I do that, let me issue a word of caution and then a word of prayer. Uh, as a father of three myself, last thing I want to do is drop a bunch of truth bombs um, on your child during the service. I'll be mentioning by name a lot of, shall we say, biological events. Um, I will not, however, go into any kind of explicit detail. So that being said, uh, I'd like to pray for our time. So let's pray. Lord, you are the creator of all life, and you called it good. This morning as we gather and look at the truths of your scriptures, let us remember that. Your love extends to all human beings, God, from those just conceived to those on their deathbeds. You placed value on our lives and called us to live for you. The Apostle Paul said that to live is Christ, but to die is gain. As we continue to live and continue to fight for every living human being, help us by your spirit, Father, to show the world the value of living for your son, Jesus Christ. We love you, God, and pray this time we'll honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Sanctity of Life Sunday was started by Ronald Reagan on January 13th, 1984, the 11th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, uh, which gave women the right to choose whether or not to have abortions. It's recognized all over the country as the day we remember the loss of so many innocent lives, uh, particularly through abortion, but by other means as well. The latest statistics show that in 2017, the abortion rate in the United States dropped to 13.5 abortions per 1,000 women. This is the lowest rate uh, since abortion became legal, legal in 1973, yet still 862,320 children were aborted in 2017, our latest statistics. So we still have a way to go. What I'd like to talk to you about this morning, though, is not statistics, although some of us nerds would love to do that for the next few hours. Uh, I'm here to talk about what happens to all those babies when they do die. And not just the aborted children, but the miscarriages, the stillborn the newly born, and those people, young and old, who lack the mental capability of recognizing their sinfulness for what it is. This is an important topic, especially on a day like today. So to keep it interesting, I'd like to share with you why this is near and dear to my heart. Um, so a little background testimony, or a lot of background testimony, is necessary. Um, I realize some of it may not seem pertinent to the topic at hand. Uh, however, knowing a little bit about me, where I came from, and the roads that led me to the passion for life I now have, should aid in one, keeping you awake, and two, allowing you to relate, maybe just a little, even if your story is vastly different. I do apologize, though, to those who have heard and know my story already, but maybe it'll be a little therapeutic uh, for you as it has been for me. So it's probably appropriate before I start my testimony to preface it by telling you that I realize I am by no means a man of small stature. My size often leads people to the incorrect assumption that I am not approachable. But on the contrary, this large physique you see before you loves to give hugs. Kind of like Olaf, I guess. Uh, but just like our two Great Danes that scared children when they goofily run up to them just to say hello and send all the kids running into the safety of their parents' shirt tails, I too have elicited that same reaction. 
As such, I generally wait until the hug is being offered and then quickly jump on the opportunity to do so. This secret love of hugs goes well with the not-so-secret knowledge that I am at my very core a crier, uh, an ugly crier at that. Um, I cried when I hit my first home run when I was six years old, when my brother graduated high school, see, ugly crier, (laughs) when I got engaged, when I got married, each time I found out Katie was pregnant, when each of my dogs died, when each of my sons was born, and pretty much any time I speak publicly. So it's pretty much guaranteed this morning. I was born outside of Sacramento to an Air Force family. We moved into Illinois or Illinois or Illinois, your pleasure. Uh, then moved back to the Sacramento area where I graduated high school. I moved to San Luis Obispo to attend Cal Poly, where I eventually began serving in the college ministry at First Baptist Church. Within the first two weeks of my senior year of college, uh, our Sunday night ministry had a guest speaker who would share a testimonial. I arrived that September evening with Sam, who was both my roommate and best friend. We sat in the middle of the sanctuary, as we usually did. The lights went out, the music began, and I was immersed in another wonderful night of worship. Forgetting the world around me, the band closed in prayer, and a single spot shone on the uh, stage to my left. Unable to tell who it was, I leaned over to Sam, my roommate, and asked if he knew who the speaker was going to be. He shook his head, and we both looked back toward the stage. Just as I did, the most beautiful woman, oh, hold on, the most beautiful woman in the world uh, had ever stepped into the light, had stepped into the light and into my life. She wove a tale of sadness, heroism, and faith, the likes of which I couldn't fathom. The half-hour story flew by, and before I knew it, the house lights came on, and we all stood up to go home. I walked back to Sam's truck in a dream state, hardly saying a word as we drove home. Once back at the house, I asked Sam if he saw the girl who gave her testimony that evening, to which he replied, "Uh, yeah, Rob, I was sitting right next to you. What about her? I told him I was going to marry that girl, no matter what it took. And of course, he laughed, and we said goodnight. Spent the next few days, few weeks, trying to time my decisions and locations in such a way that I would run into her. Uh, on purpose. Our college group, it wasn't that large, and being the affable guy I was, it was not difficult to speak with her, but I ran into a major obstacle, namely that I was not as big a deal as I thought I was. Sure, I was leading a men's Bible study. Uh, I was helping out with the ministry itself and in leadership, but that didn't mean squat to her. The first time we officially met, I saw her walking toward the back of the sanctuary after the next week's college service. Uh, I purposefully strode back there, timing my interest into the welcome area in such a way that our eyes would meet and she would fall madly in love with me. Or so I thought. Needless to say, it did not go as planned. We did lock eyes. She politely smiled and I grinned like an idiot. I walked the ten paces over to her to introduce myself. Hi, I said, I'm Rob. She replied, I'm Katie. Nice to meet you. I said, you as well. Then nothing. She walked away. As her friends called to her, claiming that they had to go. So, strike one. The next week, I did almost the exact same thing. She walked out. I walked out. We met in the back. I introduced myself to her a second time, just in case she actually didn't know who I was. She also introduced herself a second time with no inflection in her voice that would indicate she had any recollection of me. I asked her if she enjoyed the service, to which she replied that she did. Then her friends called her away a second time, and she left. Strike two. The following week, a repeat of the previous two, two. This time, I thought I'd add some levity. Presuming there was no way she couldn't remember who I was, I walked right up to her in the back and I said, Hey, Katie, how's it going? She politely said, I'm good. How are you? 
To which I jokingly responded, good as well, I'm Rob, in case you didn't know. And to which she replied, oh, well, nice to meet you, Rob. <clears throat> as anyone would say who was introducing themselves to someone for the very first time. She gave no indication on her face or in her voice that somewhere in the depths of the last two weeks she had any idea who I was. So, strike three. I was devastated. All I could muster was a quick, hope you have a good night, as I sulked away towards Sam's truck. I had no idea how this was possible. How could she not remember me? Me, of all people. Three weeks in a row, I had gone out of my way to make introductions, and the small talk I had been doing my whole life, I was determined not to give up. There are four strikes in my family. The fourth week, business as usual, she walked to the back. I followed on the opposite side of the sanctuary. Very sheepishly, I said, hi, Katie. Do you remember me? I'm Rob. To which she exclaimed with a smile, yes, nice to see you again. Finally, now that I had her attention, it was game on. I took full advantage of the opportunity, talked with her every opportunity I could about anything and everything. After a few more weeks of chance occurrences, I asked her if she wanted to grab a cup of coffee. A year and two months after that first date, I saw her walking through the doors at the back of that same sanctuary, this time toward me, and she clearly knew who I was. She was dressed in a stunning white wedding gown. Of all the bozos she could have married, she chose the one with the crease on his forehead and the one who likes hugs. I thank God every day she trusted his plan for her life by marrying me, even if she had no idea what she was getting into. After we got married, we moved back to Sacramento. I served as a youth pastor at a church plant there eventually leaving over differing ideas of ministry with senior pastor. So trying to find my vocation, I was a substitute teacher, volleyball coach, basketball coach, track and field coach, substitute Spanish speaker who doesn't speak Spanish. <laughs> I did landscaping. I worked for UPS. I worked for Costco until I eventually landed in and graduated from the CHP Academy. And so I'll slow to a stop right there. At this point in my life, it's 2008. I'm a 27-year-old new police officer, recently moved to Buellton and working in Santa Barbara for the CHP. My bride, Katie, is newly pregnant with our firstborn son, Nicholas. Everything seems to be going well, and what happened behind the scenes was a little crazy, but it was still awesome. We struggled for a few years financially, and more importantly, while trying to have a child. Uh, when I finally had a job with enough medical benefits, it enabled us to look into what was going on. Even though most infertility comes out of pocket, I was finally making more than minimum wage and could afford any tests that we had to take. It all seemed pretty simple. Katie had to take a certain pill one time a month, and we would get pregnant. Not too bad, comparatively speaking, to what some families go through. The second month of taking the pill, we got pregnant, which happened to coincide with my CHP graduation. Nine months later, Nick was born. Life was going quite well. Shortly after moving to the Central Coast, we began attending Grace here. She gave birth to Nicholas, and we settled into a very comfortable life. <clears throat> I was enjoying my new job. We were part of an amazing Sunday school class here, and that functioned more like a small group than a class. We bought a house in Santa Maria to move closer to Grace and closer to our friends. Around that time, we went back to the doctor to see about getting a few more of those magic baby pills. Turns out the prescription to which Katie had taken in uh, was not the one that was supposed to work, and it was entirely wrong. Our current doctor educated us on how the female body worked, and that Katie was supposed to take the pills once a day for a whole week, and that we never should have gotten pregnant taking them the other way, from a biological standpoint, anyway. We immediately chalked it up to the Lord granting us a child in his providence. We began trying to have another kid in 2010. One month turned into two, turned into two, 12. We went in for more tests and discovered that unless God did another miracle, we wouldn't be able to have any more biological children. Not to be deterred, and with both of us always knowing we would adopt at least one child, <clears throat> 
we began researching our options, ultimately deciding after much prayer and petition to pursue foster adoption. We went through the classes, home studies, and all the other trappings involved with child welfare services until we were finally certified to receive a child in the summer of 2011. One crisp Saturday afternoon in September, we got the call. I can remember where we were. I stood outside while Nick was playing and Katie paced along the grass in our backyard because cell phone reception was terrible in our house. She hung up the phone and came over to me crying, telling me that we were going to have another son. His name was Matthew. Though we would all call him Maddie, he was in the neonatal intensive care unit, or NICU, in Santa Barbara. His mother had three children previously taken away due to a heroin addiction before, during, and after pregnancy, so Maddie was a shoo-in to be a part of our family. We went down to see him within the hour and immediately fell in love. His only abnormality was a cleft lip and palate, which may have been hereditary or due to drug use while he was in utero. He was our son, but that would be the problem. Well, we tried to fill the missing piece in our family with a false narrative provided by the county. Tried to give our firstborn, Nick, a little brother, only to be crushed. We cared for Maddie for the first nine months of his life. We expressed milk into his little mouth as he couldn't nurse a bottle with his cleft lip to watch him cough it out his nose as too much milk went through his cleft palate. We cared for him and nursed him back to health after an excruciating surgery, all while his mom went through rehab. Ultimately, the county decided on reunification with his mother over permanent placement with us. Uh, We were devastated. We ended up caring for another little boy named Zane while Maddie was still with us, but he was also placed with his mom shortly after um, we lost Maddie. Two potential sons stripped away in the span of just two weeks. The kicker for both Katie and I was that shortly after both boys went back to their mothers, we were driving down Broadway, probably to Food Max or the like, when Nick in his car seat from the back of our truck piped up and said, Dad, it's my fault that Maddie and Zane left, isn't it? I couldn't hold it together. I am an ugly crier. So I had to pull over, calmly try to explain to my three-year-old son how it was in no way, shape, or form his fault. We haven't participated in the foster care system since. We believe in, pray for, support, and encourage those that choose that path and know in our hearts that even spending a week with those little kids is better than nothing and can increase their quality of life exponentially. But so far, our hearts haven't healed to the point of being able to participate in it again personally. Nevertheless, we were determined to continue the expansion of our family. Ultimately, we learned about this amazing organization called Snowflakes. It's an embryo adoption agency. Uh, which means that couples who go through in vitro and have embryos created in a laboratory have a couple different options with their attempts of having children. They can continue to have their embryos cryogenically frozen, paying uh, for that freezing to continue until they choose to try again. Um, They can have the embryos incinerated and stop payment. Or they can adopt them out to willing families like us, similar to a sperm or egg donor. So after thoroughly researching this process, uh, we proceeded to pursue embryo adoption which not only could save the lives of these embryos, whom we as believers feel are each individual people, uh, but we could expand our family, give Nick a sibling, and Katie could be pregnant again, which was another of her heart's desires. So, in the fall of 2012, we went through the extensive month-long process filled with countless drugs, needles, and pain until the doctor implanted those two embryos. To our joy, Katie was pregnant, but it wasn't in God's plan. She miscarried a few weeks after the procedure. Feeling like this was our best shot to have more children and passionately striving to save the lives of some of the embryos, we tried again the following spring. We went down to L.A. I looked through the microscope at the Petri dish where the embryos lay in wait for the procedure and observed two little blobs on the screen. The procedure went off without a hitch, and we found out shortly after that Katie was pregnant again. 
This time, the pregnancy was viable. So after a month or so, we went back to our infertility doc for a follow-up. He hooked Katie up to the ultrasound machine and counted not one, not two, but three embryos were in there. One of the two had split, and we were going to be the parents of triplets. After picking my jaw up off the floor and prying Katie's eyes away from the computer screen, we were overjoyed. We felt that after going through so much turmoil and heartache with Maddie, the Lord had blessed us, even though we definitely did not deserve it. Turns out God had decided we were parents fit to care for only boys, as all three of the triplets were males, and we affectionately named them David, Samuel, and Joshua. As if carrying triplets wasn't stressful enough, we found out that one of the three, Joshua, was smaller than the other two. The doctors determined it did not appear that he had any kidneys, uh, which was stunting his overall growth, including restricting the development of his lung tissue, almost ensuring that his birth would be fatal. Katie and I began to prepare for the worst. Many of you in the sanctuary prayed for us during those tumultuous months. Through it all, my bride was radiant and displayed a resolve focused on the providence of Christ, the likes of which I have never personally known. Fortunately, she was able to carry the boys to week 33, four weeks short of a full term, which was quite a feat considering the fragility of Joshua. If he hadn't been struggling like he had, the doctors said she could have delivered them naturally. But due to Joshua's sensitivity, on October 17, 2013, she was induced. Dave and Sam came out just fine, but Joshua, as we anticipated, struggled from the word go. They immediately hooked him up to a breathing machine and began pumping his little body full of oxygen. Even in her drug-induced state, they wheeled Katie over to all three of the boys' bedsides at the NICU and Miriam. As we looked at the doctors, nurses, and breathing technicians working on Joshua's little body, we silently cried and prayed for his little life. After an ultrasound of his organs showed he was, in fact, missing both kidneys and had such little lung tissue that it was merely a matter of time until the machine would effectively burst his lungs. Katie and I knew all this going in and had already decided there was no way we would let our son suffer such a painful death. Confidently, we let the doctors know we were going to pull him off the breathing machine and hold him in our arms as his little life slowly faded away. I feel so blessed. <laughs> uh, it's not funny. I'm sorry. That was a nervous stop crying, Rob, laughter. Uh, that we were able to hold and watch my youngest son for three hours and six minutes. Nick said it best, though. Um, a few days before the triplets were born, we were on our way home from Awana talking about Joshua's probable fate and how it would be okay to be sad if he died. Nick looked at me. <laughs> he looked at me with curious eyes and said, Why would I cry, Dad? He'll be in heaven. And that's a good thing. I meant to bring Kleenex up here. That was dumb. Somebody help me out here. Who's got Kleenex? Yes, Cindy Georgie. Thank you, ma'am. I'm going to steal him. <laughs> yeah, please don't fall. <clears throat> All right. That's it for now. I promise. We're good. We're good. All right. So he'll be in heaven with Jesus, and that's a good thing. But is he? It's a question I always thought I knew the answer to. What seemed to be the right moral answer was, yes, of course he's in heaven. What kind of God would allow an innocent baby to suffer eternal damnation? In actuality, though, for a long time I relied solely on what my heart told me. Not what scripture said, and when, not that scripture didn't say it, but I didn't have scripture to back up my belief in my heart. And that's never a good thing. Going to digress a little. Shortly after 9-11, Larry King, the CNN television show host, had on his program a panel of religious folks that included John MacArthur, a fairly well-known and sometimes infamous pastor from Southern California. 
The title of that night's program was September 11th, Where Was God? At one point in the discussion, King bluntly asked MacArthur about the two-year-old at the bottom of the World Trade Center rubble. MacArthur instantly replied, he quickly and decisively, with two words, instant heaven. King followed up with another question as to whether the child was a sinner, and MacArthur didn't miss a beat. Instant heaven. It was that interview that led MacArthur to write a book called Safe in the Arms of God, Truth About Heaven and the Death of a Child. This is my copy here. It's a little worse for the wear. That's what happens when you have a hungry beagle. Um, This book has been extremely helpful in my life. It details through the use of scripture what happens to children when they die. Now I know some of you are diehard MacArthur fans and others speak with a tinge of, his name with a tinge of repulsion. For the record, I'm probably somewhere in between, but for this topic, I believe him to be spot on. MacArthur explains some of the different viewpoints this way. A universalist has a quick answer because he believes everyone goes to heaven at death. At the other end of the spectrum are those who believe that an unborn child has no soul and therefore has no eternal fate. In between are those who hold a variety of opinions and beliefs. Some declare that only certain elect infants go to heaven, while the non-elect suffer endless punishment. Others believe infant baptism inoculates a child against hell and secures a place in heaven, but they leave out the souls of those who die prior to birth. Still others believe that all children who die go to heaven because God sovereignly chooses to extend his special grace to them. Those days of losing Joshua are a blur. And that's probably God imposed to protect mine and Katie's sanity, but... Who knows? I've known Joshua less than any person I've ever known in my life, but I miss him more than anyone I've ever known. And yet, I needed more than just a faint knowledge that he was with Jesus. MacArthur puts it this way, scriptural answers without comfort will fall on deaf ears, and comfort without scripture will never completely heal a grieving heart. Scripture is clear with how God regards human life. Jeremiah wrote, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet for the nations. God values us before we are born, not just the prophets, but each and every person created. David wrote something similar in Psalm 139. Your eyes saw my substance, my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. MacArthur then paraphrased these verses this way. From the womb, you are a person in God's eyes. He knows who is creating you to be. He knows the full plan and purpose for your life, your talents, your potential skills, your desires and dreams, your personality, and every detail of your makeup as a -a one-of-a-kind individual. Now, Rob, you may be saying that's all well and good, but how can they be in heaven if they haven't believed in the Lord Jesus and repented of their sins? And that's a great question, and thank you for thinking it. If we know that God created all people and he ascribes value to them, how can we know without belief and repentance the unborn can be in heaven with Christ? The simplest answer I can give you is grace. None of us are saved by works, not a one. In fact, we are condemned by our works and the law. It's the same grace that saves us, that saves the children who have not reached a mental stage where they are morally culpable for their sins. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy about the infants and young children and whether they would in fact cross into the promised land this. And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. They have no knowledge of good or evil. But don't they have a sin nature, you might ask? Won't they be condemned by that? Another great question. Thank you. 
Romans 6.23 answers that. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If these children did, have, did not have a sinful nature, they would never die in the first place. Sin that kills us. Charles Spurgeon also addresses this very question. He wrote, We hold that all infants who die are elect of God and are therefore saved. And we look to this as being the means by which Christ shall see the travail of his soul to a great degree. And we do sometimes hope that thus the multitude of the saved shall be exceeded by the multitude of the lost. I believe that the Lord Jesus, who said, Of such is the kingdom of heaven, doth daily and constantly receive into his loving arms those tender ones who are only shown and then snatched away to heaven. See, it's only by God's grace that any of us are saved in the first place. So is it a stretch to find that children who have no sense of the consequences of their sin would be issued sovereignly assigned grace? I think not. Even these truths, though, are sometimes difficult to apply in the midst of loss, especially on a day like today when we think of the enormity of the loss of life. Potentially billions of children throughout history did not get to experience the fullness of a life on this earth. Having been taken home long before the rest of us, and most without having ever taken their first breath. John Newton, the gospel minister who wrote Amazing Grace, wrote to his friends who had recently lost their child. I hope you are both well reconciled to the death of your child. I cannot be sorry for the death of infants. How many storms did they escape? Nor can I doubt in my private judgment that they are included in the election of grace. How often I've thought of Joshua and how many times he's escaped the storms that would surely have ensued from lack of kidneys, even if he had the lung tissues to survive. The final scripture I want to point to you is the one Katie and I lean most heavily on. It was read at Joshua's service by one of my best friends. It comes out of 2 Samuel 12, where David has already committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah by sending him to the battlefront. David's friend and prophet of Israel, Nathan, has just rebuked David and informed him that his infant son, born as a result of the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, was going to die. So we'll pick up in the second half of verse 15 where he writes, And the Lord affected the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to us. How then can we say to him now, The child is dead. He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood what the chi- that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, and he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back to life? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. The story is rich in so many ways, and I seem to glean more and more from it every time I read it. But what I'd like to point out this morning is the peace that David had after his child passed away. What a heavy loss. What a heavy burden that he faced in those days leading up to that child's death. And yet as soon as the moment had come and gone, David had his trust firmly in the Lord. I shall go to him, he said, but he will not return to me. 
David knew that one day he and his lost child would be together again, even if they could not at this present time. The year following the triplets' birth for us was difficult, to say the least. Uh, We were constantly reminded of our loss while struggling to keep our heads above water. Every time we went out in public, a curious stranger would ask the inevitable question about our family and our identically dressed boys. Are they twins? Which, side note, 90% of the time, we didn't dress them the same because it was cute. It was merely a survival mechanism. If you have to grab an outfit quickly before one crawls away or the other one grabs him by the ear, it's so much easier to grab two of the same of every garment than to think about two separate outfits. So while the question of whether they were twins or not may seem like a simple one, it's actually pretty complex. If a pair of humans are twins and one sadly passes away, they don't cease to be twins. But most people don't ask whether a single child is a twin as that's super weird. Don't go up to your buddy and ask if he's a twin when he doesn't have a twin standing next to him. When you see two of the same baby dressed identically out in public, it seems obvious that they would be twins. We felt and continue to feel that if people ask the question and dig into the personal lives of strangers, then we had the right, nay, the honor of defending the legacy of our deceased son by always including him in the conversation. We never downgraded Dave and Sam to twins and refused to ever call them that. All three of their birth certificates read triplet. Initially, we would answer the question of twins with, no, they're triplets, one of them passed away. Well, that effectively ended the conversation and interaction with strangers immediately. Uh, Once in a while, people would reply with a snarky comment as they walked away, something like, well, you didn't have to make it awkward, Um, or, geez, that was rude, why'd they have to bring up their dead kid? Uh, True quote, by the way, which admittedly, we did not handle with the necessary grace, and it led to a few arguments with strangers in the old Costco parking lot. (coughs) Sorry if you happen to witness that, by the way. In the years since... It's been easier, since now we can turn to Dave and Sam and ask them the question, are you guys twins? To which they reply, no, we're triplets. That always takes the pressure off us with an adorable response from the boys. Katie and I have found grace in our response as of late, merely answering with a polite, no, they're not, when asked the twin question. If they pry deeper, then we've tried to turn it into an opportunity to share the gospel with them. We, can fig- we figure that if they're asking a very personal question about our family, then we can ask them a personal question about their standing within our spiritual family. All in all, Dave and Sam, or the boys as we affectionately call them, are six now, riding bikes, climbing trees, and filling every waking hour, sometimes non-waking hours, like this morning, uh, with their love and affection. They ride bikes, they climb trees, um, they're full of life. Nick is 11 now, and while he still has memories of Maddie, Zane, and Joshua, he's a pretty amazing kid in his own right. He's handled more tragedy in his young life than a lot of adults and done so like a champ. God's promises are true and his love is sure. Sometimes things happen in our lives that we can't explain and we don't like. Downright hate. And it makes us angry. Now I freely admit I don't have all the answers. And I'm definitely not doing the best job this morning in my limited amount of time explaining the rationale and reasoning behind my belief that children who die receive instant heaven. But hopefully it's wet your whistle enough to want to dig deeper into it yourself. Don't fear the scriptures on this matter. Dive in with both feet and find out how vast this reasoning truly is and how rich the word of God can be. I welcome questions about our situation and discussions, questions about this idea of instant heaven. I just no guarantee I'll have the answers you might be looking for. But we can pray through it and search the scriptures together willingly. We all have struggles of varying degrees. Some have lost jobs. Some have been fired. 
Some have painful relationships, some severed relationships, some no relationships. We all have stories of pain. Some have never gotten pregnant. Some have miscarried. Some have lost a young child, lost an older child, lost a parent or other loved one. It's part of the human experience, I guess. But we are loved by the creator of the universe who sent his only son to die for us. And one day we will get to rejoice together with the millions and millions of innocents that came before and after us as we sing praises to our great God. Katie and I had a family member once say to us when something tragic happened in his life that it had been Satan thwarting God's plan. And that's all that gave him comfort. There was no way he said that God could have allowed something so evil to have occurred that would cause me so much pain. I have news for all of us. God uses evil for good. Look at the cross. Could something more evil have ever occurred in the history of mankind? One man willingly bearing the guilt and penalty for sins he never committed, suffering in the worst way possible, having his father turn his back on him to allow it to occur, severing the best relationship he's ever had since eternity past. All for the people that spit on him, beat him, crucified him, despised him, hated him, and rejected him. And yet, God planned all of that. We had plans, my bride and I. We were going to have four children all before we turned 30, two years apart, starting two years after we got married at 23 and 20, 21, respectively. Our first child came along just before I turned 30. Our plans rarely seemed to align with God's master plan, it seems. The fourth one just before I turned 40. Now you may be doing some quick math. Katie will enter her second trimester of pregnancy this coming <laughs> This coming Wednesday, I lied. It wasn't done. Uh, this coming Wednesday, as we adopted an Indian female embryo in November, our baby girl is due to make her Grindy debut in August. God caused that heartbeat. He created her. He knows her. He loves her. We hope to meet her again. Um, but we also know that if she joins her older brother, our youngest son Joshua, a little early in our book, there is joy and hope and that we will see her again and one day feast together at a wedding with the Lamb.
Father God, my prayer is that in spite of tragedy, disappointment, hurt, and frustration, that we will remember that we serve a God who has everything in control. Nothing falls outside of his will, not a thing. Your grace is sufficient for us in the same way that it's sufficient for those who don't have the mental capability to understand their sin, pass away, and receive instant heaven. There's comfort in that, Lord. Thank you for providing it. Thank you that your grace abounds, Father. Amen.